Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Stop. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. I'm Alison Balance. Later on tonight, we'll hear about research developing a new kind of edible plastic. But first, we'd all like to be a little smarter. So what's the best way of maximising our cognitive function and ensuring our brain is working to the best of its ability? Psychologist David Moreau at the University of Auckland has been developing something that he's hopeful will help school kids, especially ones who struggle in the classroom. A project that we started about three years ago, it's called the Moving Cog Initiative, uh, was intended to uh, give kids uh, in schools a little bit of a boost when it comes to their cognitive abilities. So the idea really was to uh, look at what we can do in terms of uh, brain health and brain function for those kids. Uh, what is it at the moment that we know works well and how we can implement those kinds of uh, interventions so as to make sure that we help those kids to the best that we can. So the way we go at it is with a combination of physical exercise and brain training. We know that physical exercise to date is probably the best way uh, to enhance brain health and, and from there uh, brain function. It's uh, one way that's been uh, shown to be reliable to create new neurons. But those new neurons that we've created, if we don't have any kind of purpose for them, if we don't have any use for them, then typically in about two weeks' time, the brain is going to get rid of them, right? And so the idea is that what we're trying to do is to maximize the chances that we're going to retain those neurons. The best way to do that is to stress the brain in a positive way or challenge the brain. And so to force it to learn something new, to use the extra resources that it has and make sure that we retain those newly formed neurons. We understand that the best thing we can do probably is to combine those two things together. What age kids are you working with? So at the moment, because of the, the design of the software and the design of the workout that we have in those schools, it's mostly kids between 7 and, and 15 years of age. On top of that, uh, one reason for trying to intervene early is also that we know that the brain is, is uh, plastic, is malleable, and it's more uh, plastic early on in life. Uh, so potentially we have a greater chance to change uh, something in terms of brain function for those kids if we intervene early on. So you've got these two interventions. You've got exercise, you have brain training. You've done a bit more work, I think, already with the exercise. So talk me through what you've been doing with the kids. What's the exercise program that you put them through? The typical workout that we're using is based on high-intensity exercise. And so what we're doing is that we're, we're just implementing an intervention that takes only 10 minutes 
per day in schools and doesn't require any kind of uh, fancy equipment or going to the gym or anything like that. It's just a, a video-based workout that can be done uh, in the classroom with a big screen. There is music with it so as to make it more enticing in this case. And the idea really is that we're asking those kids um, on short bursts of exercise to give 100% of what they've got. So what we do uh, in those schools is that we equip the kids with uh, little uh, fitness trackers, such as Fitbits, for example, um, so that we can make sure that based on their resting heart rate and the target range that we've defined, that they're actually doing what they're supposed to do, right? So if they don't give 100% on that workout, we can actually see that, and we can see to what extent it affects their improvements. So they do this for how many weeks? So they do this for uh, six weeks uh, in the program that we implemented previously. And what we see after the six weeks is that we have um, subtle but reliable improvements in terms of uh, two cognitive abilities, working memory and cognitive control. And so working memory is our ability to maintain information in memory and manipulate that to you know, uh, come to uh, make the best decision we can on, on the spot. And cognitive control is our ability to maintain our attention uh, on a particular subject or topic or, or activity that we are performing at the time. So those two uh, cognitive abilities are very, very important for a lot of things that we do in everyday life. We also know that they are fairly highly correlated with uh, things like academic achievement, with success in the workplace. So for us, it's very important to be able to uh, move the needle a little bit in those cognitive abilities because we've known for quite a while that this is kind of difficult to do. Do you know what's actually going on in the brain as a result of that exercise? With exercise, what we typically see is that we can increase uh, that production of new nerves, new brain cells, uh, by a hundredfold. That's very important here because we can take a natural process and by making sure that those kids exercise as they should, we can multiply that effect. And what we see is that in just six weeks, those kids are also getting a little bit healthier, which in terms of resting heart rate and blood pressure means a decrease. We're making the whole body a little bit better, and, and by the same token, we're actually influencing the brain and, and getting to those kinds of cognitive gains. Well, this sounds really positive, but you've mentioned that you've got brain training going on as well, so in a sense you're trying to capitalise on all those new neurons and get them working and useful so they don't get pruned out. That's absolutely right. So if there's one thing that we know is that um, with exercise and that creation of new neurons that I just mentioned, um, if we have no use or no purpose for those new neurons, uh, what the brain typically does is, is that uh, it gets rid of them, right? So where brain training comes in is that with some kind of learning that's challenging for the brain, stressing the brain in a positive way, we can make sure that uh, the large majority of those neurons um, are retained by the brain because they are needed at that point. Obviously, the combination of the two here is, is key uh, in a way because uh, one without the other doesn't quite unleash the full potential that we have. But when we combine the two, really, we can make sure that we create nerves and we really prepare the foundations, prepare the ground for um, a great learning that comes on top of this and then you know, use brain training to actually uh, develop those cognitive abilities, especially in kids who have some kind of weakness or, or difficulties with some of those abilities. 
So how do you go about doing the brain training side of this? So what we've done is that we've spent about uh, almost a year uh, working with professional game designers here in Auckland to develop a software that is both appealing to the kids, so that they really are motivated to to play with that a little bit every day, uh, but also has some fundamental value in, in developing those core cognitive abilities that we want to target. So the way we go about it um, is that we have a mini world with, with a planet uh, that initial, initially is very grayish and, and, and dusty uh, with lots of rocks floating around. And we have a, a bunch of mini games on the right-hand side that develop different kinds of cognitive abilities. And so the idea really is that um, kids are going to be uh, playing those games and eventually as they get better and better, their planet is going to beautify, it's going to get uh, more and more pretty in this case with uh, oceans and, and flowers and, and trees. And this, in a way, is implicit feedback about where they're performing well uh, and where they might need a little bit more work. Okay, so you better play it for me. All right, so here the idea is that we have a game that targets working memories or our ability to maintain information in mind at a given point in time. And so what we're going to have in a minute is just numbers that are going to, that we're going to hear. My, my goal here is just to add the last two numbers that I've heard. So let's give it a shot. Six. Here I got five and six, so the answer is 11. Six again, so that's 12 now. Six. Six again, so that's 12. Well done. Level up. The training is what we call adaptive, which means that if I do really well, it's going to become more and more difficult. And if I don't do so well, it's going to either stay at my current level or potentially make it a little bit easier. And the whole idea is that we need to stay at that, that sweet spot where we are challenging the brain, but in a way that we can overcome. And it's very important for those kids, if, if we're challenging the brain, but it's something that's too difficult to do, then most of the time we see no improvements, we see um, decreases in terms of motivation, and, and a whole bunch of other things like these. Um, so it's very important to stay right there, right where they can actually improve, and it's a bit difficult, they need to pay attention, but not to the point that they get discouraged. Can we just pop back to the menu? So you say that one concentrated on working memory, what are some of the other factors that you're looking at? So basically we've divided those cognitive abilities uh, into three groups. One of them is thinking, so that includes working memory, uh, but it also includes uh, things like attention, spatial awareness, uh, visual processing, and processing speed. But we also have cognitive abilities that are going to be important for language and for numeracy as well, so that we can also target kids who have difficulties with those, uh, those abilities, such as kids with dyslexia or the uh, mathematical counterpart of dyslexia, dyscalculia. So we have things like uh, cleanup crew, for example, that's targeting visual processing in this case, visual attention, where here the idea is to uh, maintain my attention and focus on uh, one little spaceship that I have and try to pick up some of those objects that I have floating around 
and at the same time I need to uh, use that shield that I have to avoid objects that I shouldn't touch. Here we go, I just um, uh, lost my spaceship because I just bumped into an asteroid. And so even though I center my attention on one particular thing, I still need to make sure that I'm aware of my surroundings, um, that I can divide my attention a little bit so that I can make the best decisions in this case. So I'm very impressed with it as a computer game, which is clearly working at two levels, so it's just straight entertaining for the kids, but also is giving you some quite deep information about how their brain is working and what kind of results have you been seeing? Have you done any analysis on this yet? We're still running trials, but what we're seeing at the moment is that we have some interesting gains in all those cognitive abilities. Kids who are, who are not performing as well initially, um, at least via the physical exercise uh, program, they seem to be the ones who are benefiting the most from the, the workouts. So it seems to be the case that by implementing this kind of intervention, we're closing the gaps uh, a little bit, and that's very encouraging to us. Um, what's really interesting for us as well uh, as scientists that we can see um, those changes on a day-to-day basis. We can see um, uh, how the kids are improving um, and what kind of learning curve we have. So if they plateau at some point or if they keep learning, and for what we see, most of the time learning is not linear. So we go through some of those plateaus. And so better understanding what happens at those times is, is something that's very interesting and a bit of, of more fine-grained analysis than just looking at changes from before to after. So this is all about getting a better understanding of what it is that's going on under the hood uh, in those kids' brains so as to make sure that, that we can maximise their chances to learn. Thanks, David. David Moreau is at the University of Auckland. He says that as part of this research, he and his colleagues have also looked at the genes known to be associated with brain-derived neurotrophic factor. This is a protein that helps neurons in our brains grow. Low levels of it are associated with lower cognitive function, and the good news was that it was these kids that saw the most benefit from the high-intensity exercise. David hopes that in future it'll be possible to assess an individual's genetic makeup along with their cognition and their physiology. Then, based on all of those, prescribe the exact mix of exercise and brain training that will benefit them the most. A personalised brain boost for the kids who most need it. Later this year, when all the evidence is in, the plan is to make the Move and Cog exercise and brain training programme for schools freely available online. David says they'd like to expand their work with evidence-based brain training and exercise to target older people who are experiencing cognitive declines and are perhaps struggling with memory and making decisions. In the meantime, he has some good news for the rest of us who are wondering if brain training is something we should all be doing. Oftentimes, a lot of what we do in our everyday life is uh, stimulating and challenging. And so challenge uh, doesn't have to come from a software, uh, and it doesn't have to come from a brain training game. But for a lot of people, the cognitive challenge of life in and of itself is enough to serve as uh, a bit of a training or a bit of an intervention in and of itself. Well, that's great news. Thanks, David. And my take-home message from all of this is that the best thing I can do with my brain is to keep exercising. 
Kate Fakaronga mai kwe kito tato al horihori. He hotaka e panaki a papa tuanuku, tangaroa, meirangi nui. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ National, and I'm Alison Balance. Now, plastic and plastic waste is firmly on everyone's radar these days. Around the world, the hunt is on for more environmentally friendly alternatives, made not from petroleum, but from products that will serve the same purpose and then biodegrade in the environment. Researchers at the University of Otago are hoping to use agricultural and marine byproducts to develop a flexible, edible plastic. Here's Azam Ali. We're talking about plastic film at the level, like a gladder film. That can be packaging, as it is the primary packaging, as well also it contains some functionalities. Can you explain functional packaging to me? What is a definition of functional packaging? Okay, well, this functional packaging is two ways we can uh, define. We call the active functional packaging or edible functional packaging. Edible functional packaging, which can eat, like a heat and eat. It just becomes another ingredient in your meal. Exactly, exactly. On, and other way, this active packaging means that it has a, some sort of bioactives or any ingredients you can add to deliver that into, to give a better health. Like example, in the packaging, you can introduce some vitamin C. So when people will eat as a packaging, they get an extra benefit for vitamin C. So that is the, called the active packaging, which is also the functional packaging. So what are the ingredients in this particular kind of packaging? Yes, at this moment we are thinking in the corn industry because it's quite big overseas and also in some country around Asia. So there are also some waste that is can be remaining, like fiber or protein coming from uh, that production line. And also for uh, New Zealand itself, because uh, we produce quite a lot of uh, marine produce, like shellfish, shrimps, and squid, for example, that we think, okay, why not we do not use the polymers coming from this type of uh, waste that this can be produced from the productions. Indrawati Ui says that PhD student Stephen Gatonga Gateru's edible wrap has three main ingredients. Zine, which is a protein found in corn, and chitazan, a carbohydrate from shellfish, all mixed together with polyvinyl alcohol, or PVA. And no, this is not PVA, the glue. It's a water-soluble polymer, and it's already commonly used as an additive in food and cosmetics. Stephen has been making small sheets of the plastic to test. Yes, we've got some examples here. For example, these are a kind of a type of the thin material that we are making. You can see it as a, as a soft plastic, but basically this is now the edible material that you're talking about. So by looking at it, as you, as you say, it's a plastic, but you cannot differentiate whether it's a plastic or it's a, it's, it comes from an edible biodegradable material. There's a lot of uh, fundamental research and the chemistry we have done to manipulate the molecule to create those kind of flexibility. First, this material should be able to, di- to be digested. So we have uh, done quite a lot of with the in vitro digestion process to test actually the quality of the film. And we have a mimicking like how it's happening in the stomach. When so it's you like have... an artificial stomach. Yes, indeed. So we have like artificial stomach and how is actually this film will be degraded also in a small intestine. At the end of the stage, we see, okay, everything is actually digested. So... 
What is next? The next is actually, is it yeah, safe or not? Because all of the material that we use is actually food grade. So the features we are interested in mostly are the flexibility, that's one of the things. The other one is how uh, stable it is in the wet environment. And also we are looking at uh, features, for example, permeability to gases, because uh, most of our packaging are supposed to protect uh, food from uh, the external environment. So basically we are looking at barrier properties. And the most important is how strong it is in terms of whether it can withstand uh, amount of pulling and puncture. So that's what we are um, interested in. I'm interested in that question of degradability because there are bioplastics currently available, you know, things like the lids of takeaway coffee cups, which are biodegradable, but they need to be done in a, an industrial composting system, basically, so that it needs to be very hot. It takes quite a long time. And the question for someone like me is, is this something that I could throw in my home compost bin and, and break down? You know, is it going to be something that works at a more domestic yeah. level than an industrial level? So basically the biodegradability system that we are testing here is the natural environment. So basically we have the natural enzymes and microbial properties of the soil. So we are using just the normal conditions in the soil, what you can find in the natural environment. And that's what we are testing our materials and how, for how long they can take to break down. Do you so, have any sense yet how long it takes to break down? Uh, so basically, at the moment, we are at different stages of testing, but we could say that it really takes very short time in terms of uh, when you throw it away, and you don't even have to, to worry about the bulk because by the next time you're going to throw it, the other one will be almost disappearing. I think that you saw the different kind of, in the film, some are very soft and flexible, some are a little bit less soft and flexible. The reason we have developed this, as you said, that manipulating this, you know, the materials and the compound to make them tunable degradability. You've got an interesting dilemma that you need to deal with, don't you, because you want the packaging to break down, but you don't want it to break down too quickly while it's actually doing the job. That's correct, yes. That is actually the dilemma because for packaging we need to still need to tick all of the main properties, for example, the protective capability and also the strength of the packaging itself. So the edible and degradable is actually additional function that we want to put on top of that. So it is actually a dilemma when we decide the formulations and also how we can use the film at the end. Now, I presume the idea is that you want something that would actually very easily be used in existing production systems so that a company doesn't have to change its machinery. It can just use yes. new, new feedstock in your recipe instead of what it's currently doing. Yes, I, I think you are right, absolutely, because the design of this film we have prepared is completely adaptable with the existing system. Now, I gather you've got a grant from the toxicology department to do some toxicology testing. So can you tell me what that is involving? So basically, when you think about edible film, it's something that one is going to consume. And the biggest question that comes into the mind is, how is it going to affect me? How is it going to affect me when I eat? Is it so, safe? Yes, that is the <laughs> question that always we always ask. OK, so we're talking about edible packaging, and I do have to ask, and I suspect your answer will be no, but I'll ask anyway. Have you actually tried eating it? From a research point of view, uh, what we're doing here in the lab is basically obviously not supposed to be eaten 
Yeah, the next level will be trying on mat- on food materials and some of the materials. For example, you are thinking, for example, in meat meat applications. And at this level is when then you can say that we we are going to test our products. So at that level, you might start to begin to think about the actual food qualities of the wrapping. So, you know, what is its texture like? How chewy is it? What does it taste like? (laughs) I think we need to make sure that it's safe first. And step one is is safe. safe? Yes. Step two. Step two, and then we will see, okay, how thick we need to do uh, for the covering, for the film, so that there is no changing in the sensory properties of foods. And we have done quite a lot of consumer study about the expectations, basically. I mean, consumers still has a challenge to eat their own packaging materials, basically. Thanks, Indrawati. Indrawati Ui, Azama Lee and PhD student Stephen Gatonga Gateru are all in the Department of Food Science at the University of Otago. And yes, when edible wrap starts turning up, we'll just have to get our head around eating it as part of the main course. And that's the show. You can hear those stories again and plenty more at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. If you haven't already signed up to our weekly email newsletter, you can do that at the bottom of the webpage. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. We are RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. I'm Alison Balance. Bye for now. Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.